Welcome once again to the Magnum Rewatch Podcast. My name is Graham Stark. And I'm Kathleen DeVere. And we're here to tell you all about Thomas Magnum, Private Investigator. That's right, not P.I. doesn't like it. No, pointedly so. It uh, comes up again in this episode, actually, just sort of in passing. Mm-hmm. This episode is Skin Deep. It is episode six. There we go. Originally aired January 15th, 1981. Got some stuff going on. Yeah, this is an interesting episode. Yeah. Still using the old theme music. Yeah, I was about to say, before we get into the actual episode, let's talk a little bit about the original Magnum theme. We 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 rag on it a lot. It's not good. But oh. I realized that we've never actually played it to you, and a lot of people have probably never heard it, because for re-syndication, they replaced the original title theme, which is only used in the first nine episodes, with the, you know... One that we all know and love. And if you, if you like, YouTube, like, Magnum P.I. theme, you'll find the good one. Yeah. But you won't find this one. No. This is more, like, jazzy and laid back. And, I mean, like, there's exciting things happening under the theme, but the theme music doesn't match the scenes we're being shown, particularly. No. So, anyhow, let's listen to a little bit of that. Yeah, that doesn't say Magnum P.I. That doesn't say, like, private investigator, running, jumping, climbing trees, cars exploding, gunshots ringing out in the night. No. I will tell you what that says to me, Mm. if you can play it again. Welcome to Wonderful Wednesdays at the Alabaster Room here in the scenic airport west in Reno. Thrill as Al Hampton tingles the ivories while Jimmy Smoky Tongue Prestonio takes you on a musical tour of the fanciful 50s. Tingles the ivories. <laughs> I meant to say tinkles, but whatever. I like, kind of like tingles the ivories now I, that I said it. I was not, a, you didn't tell me that you were going to read that and, uh, uh, what was the second guy's name? Uh, Jimmy Smoky Tongue Prestonio. <laughs> Smoky tongue. Smoky tongue. That's a vivid picture. Yeah, that's yeah. what that theme music says to me. Absolutely. Anyway. Anyhow, episode six. We've only got three more episodes of it or something. So the episode opens uh, on a shot of a video camera, actually. A, a, a small kind of dinky video camera with a microphone on top. And uh, a woman talking to it. Well, talking in the room. She's recording herself. We're watching it on a television, actually. We're watching yeah. what the camera sees on the television. And then also cutting to... Actual shots of the room. Yeah, less poopo vision because the uh, the VCR effect is uh, to the period, aka not super great. No, and she is talking herself into suicide. I mean, that's kind of dark, but yeah, a little dark. She's saying, um, actually, before I get to what she's saying, I should mention that she is also talking to a shotgun. <laughs> she has a shotgun lashed to the back of a chair and a piece of string wrapped around the trigger that she is holding while she sits on a couch with the shotgun aiming at her head. I mean, honestly, it's kind of an ingenious setup if you want to blow your head off. If you, Yeah, if you really got to. So what she's saying is, so a woman can't go out like a man, huh? She takes pills or swims out to sea or slits her wrist, but she ain't got the guts to blood up the old face? Isn't that what you said, huh? Well, here's one woman who's going to take it right between the baby blues. It's not very well written, that particular dialogue, I don't think. No, but what? I mean, like, she delivers it really well. She does. 
But that 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 made me think. What are those accurate statistics? I mean, she doesn't actually say statistics, but that's that's generally considered common accepted stuff from procedural crime shows. Yeah, and you know what? And I looked it up because I was like, really? Uh, and you know what? That is in fact true. Uh, I, now I have some Canadian statistics for you because they're the easiest uh, for me to find. But I feel that uh, this is also sort of plays out as generalized across the world. There is a very, there's a pretty big difference in suicide rates between men and women. Men tend to successfully commit suicide at a much higher rate than women, even though women, more women attempt suicide, if that follows. Like, mm -hmm. say, a hundred women in the world commit suicide and a hundred, or attempt to commit suicide and a hundred men attempt to commit suicide, men will have a much higher, I hate to use the word success, but they'll have a, they're more likely to do so. Because they're more likely to do things like shoot their head off with a gun. Here's the deal. Uh, males frequently complete suicide using uh, sort of high mortality actions like hanging yourself, giving yourself carbon monoxide poisoning, and uh, use firearms. This is in contrast to women who tend to rely on drug overdosing. And while drug overdosing is certainly extremely bad for you because it takes a while for you to overdose, if you're caught and you can, somebody can get you to the hospital and get your stomach pumped, you will probably recover. In Europe, the most common method of, of attempted suicide is hanging. Uh, but men tend to hang themselves more. And then the second most common for men was firearms, and for women it was poison. So there you go. So why do men use more firearms? I mean, mostly people say that it's because men tend to own more firearms. And in fact, there are some, uh, there are some statistics that indicate that uh, as uh, uh, gun control increases, the rates of suicide decrease because less people have access to firearms. Hmm. So here's the deal. In Canada, firearm suicide is the third leading cause of death following automobile accidents and suicides with other means. And uh, Those are seriously the three top causes of just death in Canada? Well, among 15 to 24-year-old Canadians. Wow. It's uh, suicide. And two of them are suicide. Yeah. Uh, and in a home where there are firearms, uh, it, it is five times more likely to be the scene of a suicide than a home without a gun. Just basically because if you are going to attempt suicide with a gun, you are probably going to kill yourself. Wow. Men in Quebec, they are more likely to use firearms in their suicide attempts. And that means that in Quebec, when you compare men to women, uh, men successfully commit suicide at a rate 3.5 times higher than women do. In Canada as a whole, 20% of men committed suicide using firearms. 3% of women committed suicide using firearms. So according to at least... Canadian statistics, sort of Canada-wide and Quebec-based, yeah, men are way more likely to use guns and therefore way more likely to die. Which becomes relevant later in the episode. So the woman, uh, whose name is Erin, is sitting there doing this, and it really sounds like she's pretty serious about not only doing this, but recording it so that the man she's talking to can see it later, which is pretty grim. Uh, and then the phone rings, and she's like, oh, okay, gets up, walks over, Turns off the tape, answers the phone. You only hear her half of the conversation, but she's like, no, you can't come over. I don't want to see you again. It's over between us. You know that. Go away. And then she hangs up the phone. And she's like, he can't control me. He can't control me anymore. anymore. But interestingly enough, the guy she's talking to on the phone has a different name than the person she's addressing in this alleged suicide attempt. Yeah, because she then picks back up the script that she is working from because she is rehearsing for a role. Yes. Notably... The name on the script is Skin Deep, which is the name of this episode. And the author on the script is Donald P. Belisario. Which is kind of a fun throwaway. And who, then becomes funnier later in the episode. Who, uh, of course, is the producer for 
uh, Magnum P.I., the co-creator and the writer of this episode, mm. also called Skin Deep. So at this point, I've, now that we've sort of gotten that <gasps> reveal out of the way, I didn't want to keep you guys in too much suspense while we were discussing suicide. Let's talk about her outfit. Oh, wow. So her hair is voluminous. It is like a triangle coming off her head. I didn't know you could feather hair that much. Oh, it's amazing. Like, you know, the like the Farrah Fawcett poster that, you know, was really popular at the time? It's bigger than that hair. I feel like today, if somebody left a house like that, I'd be like, what did you, is your hair okay? Did you get electrocuted? Like, it's so, because she has like naturally curly hair and it's just like frizzed completely out. Mm -hmm. This seems like a worst case scenario for hair, but apparently this is what you were doing in like 1981, looking pretty good doing it. And uh, she is wearing uh, bright red track pants and a bright red deep V t-shirt combo. Oh, yeah. And everything looks like both items look like they are a size too small. This is a very, very lean toned woman. And like the band of this track pants is kind of like and they're high waisted, of course, because this is the 80s. And the band of the track pants is like visibly digging into her. And I'm like, how is that comfortable? That looks awful. This, by the way, is Kathy Sheriff playing Aaron Wolf. This is the uh, the character's name. Uh, Kathy Sheriff didn't have much of a career after 1985, just sort of stopped appearing in stuff but is best known as playing a Klingon in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Wow. Yeah. So she sits back down after unplugging the phone because whoever she was talking to won't stop calling back. Mm-hmm. She, she sit- seems very persistent. Mm-hmm. She sits back down and continues with her rehearsal from the top, doing her whole speech again more meaningfully this time. Mm-hmm. Now this time... She actually starts mixing in the name of the person she talked to on the phone into the script. Like David. I, da, yeah, David. So it's some guy named David. It's John in the script. But she keeps mixing it up and saying David. In yeah. fact, she she like she starts the scene, and then she says David. She's like, damn, start again. All right, John. And then in the middle of the scene, she says David. So clearly this David guy is really bothering her. Like, mm-hmm. he's on her mind. And that's the guy who was on the phone call. So then she continues delivering these lines, showing that a woman can blow her own head off just to show you how smart you think you are. The music finally appears in the scene. There's been no music prior. There's a rising tension. She's she's pulling on the string attached to the trigger. She finishes her dialogue. You see the trigger pull. There's a gunshot noise. And back in Vietnam, Magnum bolts awake in his bunk in the jungle to the sound of gunfire. Dives out of bed, grabs a rifle, starts firing out the window at his assailants before Magnum now in Robin Master's guest house bolts awake again, having had terrible Vietnam flashbacks. Yeah. It's a really cool little jump sequence. Mm-hmm. But it's like, well, that's dark for primetime television. Yeah. And why, but why, why did we hear a gunshot in the scene? Because it turns out Higgins is skeet shooting. Yeah, so Magnum's having nom flashback dreams uh, at 5.55 a.m. because Higgins is outside shooting clay pigeons. Mm-hmm. So Magnum goes out there and is like, look, Higgins, it was it, I got in at 4 a.m. I've had less than two hours sleep. Why are you shooting clay pigeons at 6 in the morning? What the hell? And Higgins is like, well, I prefer shooting pigeons at 6 in the afternoon, Magnum. And you see Magnum sort of like look around and try to find the sun and go, oh, I slept for 14 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, a fun little scene and doesn't necessarily have to be in there. Uh, but uh, I think this is uh, also kind of reflective of uh, there is 
a little bit of a change in tone. I feel that Magnum and Higgins are less like openly antagonistic to one another in this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Higgins is also like, don't you want to know who's shooting the, the, who's like pulling the skeets for me? And Magnum's like, nah. And just walks off, and Higgins looks a little disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> well, because well, because uh, Magnum says because uh, he apologizes for sort of like laying into Higgins, and is like, "I'm sorry, Higgins. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even blame you if you set the dogs on me." And Higgins is like, "Well, I'm sorry, but they're occupied." Pull another clay pigeon goes off, and Magnum's like, uh, no." Like yeah. he actually, there's there's narration. He's like, "I almost bit, but I decided not to," and it's like. You never find out in the episode, by the way, who is actually launching these pigeons, but it's apparently Zeus and Apollo are doing this. They're so well-trained. They know so many commands. Like, they could just step on a button for pull. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. So uh, then we cut to the King Kamehameha Club, where uh, Rick, of course, is fielding Magnum's calls. Yeah. (laughs) Rick's a good friend. Rick is a really good friend. (laughs) Like, he has a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Magnum basically makes the King Kamehameha Club his office, meets clients there, uh, meets girls there, all sorts of things. Uh, but he he gets there and Rick tells Magnum that David Norman, the film producer, has been waiting to see Magnum since 10 a.m. And it's got to be like probably like seven o'clock by this point. Probably. Because Magnum would have had to have like, you know, gone inside, gotten dressed, gone to the King Kamehameha Club. Presumably done his laps. I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> it might be even be, well, I don't know if it's, it's eight. It still it, looks pretty bright out. Yeah, but it's Hawaii. So long, Aren't they closer to the equator, though? Long summer nights. Oh, no, the know. closer to the equator, the yeah. more general, the more, oh, like, equalized true. your time gets. That's true. Well, okay, so it's probably around seven. It's and not important. Magnum I mean, says that he told David Norman that he wouldn't take a case from him. Three weeks ago. Three weeks ago. Not even, it wasn't even a divorce case. He just wanted him to follow Aaron Wolf around and find out who she was seeing because they'd broken up. And he's like, whatever, screw this guy. And Rick's like, did you not hear? Aaron Wolf blew her head off last night. And Magnum's like, oh, what? Magnum serious is the hell up. And is like, okay. And goes out and talks too. But first he lingers in the doorway and they, this is, it's a beautiful shot. And it's nicely set up because like he's in a doorway and there's like a big reflective plane of, plane, pane of glass next to him. And you can't see any of the camera crew, which is nice, which would have taken a couple of minutes to get everybody in the mm-hmm. right spot. But also it's just like this wonderful honey shot of Magnum. Honestly, I have never seen a man make high-waisted jeans look so good. <laughs> We're talking high-waisted, like light blue acid wash jeans. Yeah. And, he, and I'm like, you know what? He looks great. Yep. So Magnum walks over and uh, says hello to David Norman, played by Ian McShane. And I was really excited about this. Ian McShane, likely most North Americans will know him as uh, the character of Al Swearingen from Deadwood. Mm. Uh, I know Paul's a big fan. Most people outside of North America would probably know him more as Lovejoy from Lovejoy, a sort of a similar series, I guess, uh, to Magnum in a lot of ways. Which ran from 1986 to 1994, where he played a lovable rogue and antique dealer with an amazing talent for spotting hidden treasures. And when not looking for the odd collectible, Lovejoy spent most of his time using his con artist skills to help out those less fortunate. It sounds like a fantastic show. He was like private detective, con artist, antique dealer, roguish... I feel like there is kind of a spate of shows like this sort of in the 80s after Magnum got super popular. Uh, recently, Ian McShane was also in Kings, short-lived TV series in 2009. He plays uh, Blackbeard in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. He's been in a lot of stuff over the years. He was just in um, John Wick 
with Keanu Reeves. He was just on an American Horror years. Story on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, Which is where maybe people might have seen him more recently. I guess, probably, yeah. But most people will probably know him as Lovejoy or Elsewhere Engine from Deadwood. Uh, and he's looking quite young here, but still has that roguish appeal that, that uh, people seem to like about him. Yeah, he actually looks like a gigantic ass and acts one acts like one too. Oh, he's so good at it though. Yeah, he's honestly Ian McShane is doing a fantastic job of acting in this episode. Like, I have to give him kudos for really bringing an A game. Oh yeah, so uh, he uh, might be the best actor in this episode. No offense <laughs> to everybody else. <laughs> so Rick comes over and tells him to calm down. He's been drinking all day. Yeah, well, Rick actually says uh, that he can drink as much as he likes and actually gets him another drink as long as he doesn't disturb the other patrons. And I'm like, wait, that's not... I mean, I guess maybe they didn't have serving it right back then, but you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> you can drink until your liver does flip-flops. Oh, Rick, you have the worst lines. <laughs> I get the feeling Rick thinks he's cool. Uh, um, yeah, I'm glad they dropped that Casablanca thing from the pilot, but Rick still thinks he's super cool. Oh. I think maybe maybe Rick hangs around with Magnum because, you know, Magnum actually is cool. Oh, man, that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. I get the impression TC doesn't actually care. No. TC is like, well, I'm friends with these guys, I guess. I guess they're my friends. Okay. So getting back to the actual conversation instead of just analyzing the characters of... <laughs> I like it. David Norman is a gigantic asshole, and Magnum asks him a little bit about Aaron... And he's like, oh, Erin is a terrible actress, but she is, like, super hot. And, like, it's such a tragedy. She, she's, got the, she's got the right DNA for the screen. Yeah. Like, face and skin and boobs and all that. She's, just, you know, you can teach someone to act, but you can't teach someone to look as amazing as Erin Wolf. So Magnum's like, okay. And then David lays this huge guilt trip on Magnum, saying, if you had taken my case three weeks ago and I told you that somebody was, like, stalking her or in danger and I wanted to know what was going on, she might still be alive. Yeah, because yeah, he says she was murdered. Magnum's like, what? She, she committed suicide. And he's like, no, no. I know it was murder. It must be. There's no way she would kill herself. You have to find out who this is. And, yeah, at least this... I'm, I actually feel like Magnum wouldn't have fallen for that guilt trip. The, like, if you'd taken my case three weeks ago... Right, I, I'm pretty sure that Magnum should have been like, that's a stupid reason for me to take this case. Are you trying to guilt me into this? I do like, there's a little moment before David starts talking about her that uh, he's like, you don't like me very much, do you, Magnum? And Magnum says, not a lot. <laughs> it's very, like, ba very, very straightforward. Yeah, and David Norman gives him this sort of, like, points at him and gives him this look, like, you, okay. As if to say, like, that works for this, right? Mm. He's like, good, I don't want you to like me. I want you to do the good thing, do the thing that's correct. Mm -hmm. Before we jump to the next scene, I, gu I guess I should say, they established in this scene that Erin Wolfe, while now making a bigger name for herself these days in 1981, got her start in 72 doing basically like jungle flicks, they call them, where she just sort of like flounces around in the jungle. Was this a genre of filmmaking? Eh, uh, yeah. It was. I mean, they weren't necessarily called jungle flicks, but there was a lot of, like, you know, American woman in bikini gets stranded on native island with either angry savages, in heavy air quotes, or monsters, or... We're talking, like, kind of softcore 1970s B-movies. Yeah. Where the plot is less about the plot and more about, whoa, that girl's naked and she's swimming. Yeah, exactly. Lots of, like, bathing under waterfalls and running along beaches and... 
an excuse to film a movie in a tropical climate so that the production crew can have lots of fun and then an excuse to put bouncing boobies on a screen. I can see the appeal. Right? Yeah. Lots of people like boobs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it seems seem, like it was a it seems like it was a growth market. Yeah, and honestly, you don't <laughs> need to spend a lot of money on boring things like scripts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. It sounds like they didn't in this case either. All right, but anyhow, uh, before Magnum goes ahead, he goes and meets the coroner just to sort of look at Aaron Wolf's body. That was that, that was my next question. How did he get into the morgue? I, I feel like he knows the coroner. I guess. Like they're having a pretty familiar conversation, and he seems like a nice guy, the coroner. And I would actually want to give Magnum PI some 1981 kudos because we've had a that's racist count, but I'm gonna actually start a new count for that's not racist with like a happy exclamation point on the end because the coroner is an Asian guy, and it's just like here is the perfect kind of representation of non-white people on camera that I like to see. It's like here's a character; actually... he doesn't need to be Asian. But he is. There's nothing like, you know, stereotypical Asian-y about him. He's just a really competent guy who happens to be not white. And it's like, oh, that's so nice. There's actually a surprisingly diverse cast of supporting characters. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, even in this episode, there's later on, there's a guy who runs a helicopter tourism company who's Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the, like, Rick's assistant manager at the Kamehameha Club is Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. Like, it's... It's it's a pretty good show for that. I mean, it'd be insane to be shooting in Hawaii and having it be wall-to-wall whiteies. Yeah, well, I mean, but not unsurprising. I wouldn't be surprised by seeing wall-to-wall whiteies. I mean, yeah. you see almost wall-to-wall whiteies on most TV shows today. It's mm, true. So in the morgue, the doctor is showing Magnum Aaron's body uh, and what's left of her face. Obviously, we don't see that, but apparently it's pretty gruesome. It, yeah, apparently there's no face left. Yeah. And like you just see some hair. Magnum has another nom flashback. Involving Rick and TC this time, where they're in the same hut that he was in earlier. Again, it's black and white, very high contrast. He sort of snaps himself back out of it. Magnum is like, that's weird, you know, women don't kill themselves with guns, right? I mean, he's generalizing, but as we found out that there's there's numbers to support it, and, you know, he's just trying to get to the root of what this could be, and, you know, now this makes even more sense. Maybe this could be a murder. Yeah, the coroner's like, you know what? I have never seen a woman kill herself with a gun, but I've seen a lot of people kill themselves in unique ways, and this might just be another one of them. He's very no-nonsense. Yeah, he's like, I've seen a lot of weird one-off suicides that I've seen once and never again, and maybe this is just another one for that list. So, (laughs) I don't know. It's possible. I feel like coroners are not the best people to ask about unusual methods of death because they're probably entirely desensitized to everything at that point. This is borne out with with this coroner specifically in one of my favorite lines in the whole episode just because of how deadpan it's read, where uh, Wolf's agent comes in to identify her body, and and the first thing he says is, she can't be dead. And the coroner says, why not? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I assure you she can. Um, And uh, the agent's reasoning, which I actually thought was, uh, was a funny line as well, is... Like, there's no way, like, she had the lead in Skin Deep for this producer or something. Her career was on the up and up. It was going amazingly. There's no way she'd kill herself. She'd die before that would happen. (laughs) The agent, by the way, whose name is J.J. Stein, seems like kind of a greasy agent type, but also seems like he has, like, good intentions. Mm -hmm. Like, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. And then they open up the, the locker for him to identify Aaron's body, and he immediately faints. As the doctor says, I can always spot a slumper. Yeah. This I like, though. Before he faints, that's when he finds out that she used a shotgun, and he's like, oh, no, like in the script. I'm so angry with that writer. I didn't want him to put that line in there. Damn writers. Yeah. 
Donald Belisario making fun of himself. Probably giggling a little bit. Or maybe making fun of some uppity writers that he's had to deal with. Yeah. Anyhow. So they go back to the King Kamehameha Club, because apparently this is where Magnum does all his work. And J.J. tells Magnum that David Norman is not as he appears and is not the concerned ex-boyfriend. Which Magnum sort of knows. Magnum's like, yeah, I figured it was 50-50 that he killed her when I took the case. J.J. says, oh, it's not bad for a private eye. And to which Magnum says, investigator. And mm-hmm. I didn't say he did it. I just suspect him. Yeah. Also, J.J. makes idle reference to Magnum getting 500 bucks a day for this case. I don't know if that's him just, like, pulling a number out of his ass or if he knows how much David Norman's paying him. But considering that the CIA only gave him 200 bucks a day in No Need to Know, uh, that's a pretty good paycheck. So Well, we've established the minimum wage is, like, three dollars an hour right yeah so uh, importantly jj um, uh, lets magnum know that aaron had broken up with david Mm -hmm. and didn't want to be around him anymore and was kind of scared of him and that david had a new girlfriend on the side yeah and magnum is like what while he was living with aaron and he's like uh yeah that's kind of his modus operandi he's a dirtbag yeah and also they weren't living together anymore because she'd kicked him out like a month before yeah so it's like oh the plot thickens interesting Magnum decides that he needs to check out the scene of the crime. So he just breaks into her house. I mean, we know he can pick locks, but he just goes right in. You'd think there'd be police tape there or something. While he's walking around the house, he's just sort of idly perusing the place and narrating to himself, reflecting about his Vietnam flashbacks, which he says he hasn't had in a while. He said it's been months since he's thought about Nam, but... It's been happening more in the past couple days with this case. What bothers him is not the memories, but the fear that one day he will just go into those memories and not be able to get back out. It's really dark. That's really dark. Yeah. It's a scary thought. It's a very humanizing moment. It really is. And he is then even more humanized by uh, just taking a big old carton of homogenized milk out of Aaron's fridge and chugging it. Yeah, he like, I mean, she's only she's only been dead for a couple days, so he goes and looks in her fridge, and he's like, hey, all right, this is still good to drink, gives it a sniff, and I mean, like, I guess he does need to ingest a lot of protein to keep his muscular physique. I guess, he just starts wandering around her house drinking, yeah, drinking homogenized a, milk from the carton. Yeah, it's a one liter carton of, of milk. <laughs> it's just a really funny image. He's like, eh, while I'm here, blah, blah, blah. Magnum uh, knows how to save a buck or two. Yeah. I mean... Free meal on this job. Why not? Um, uh, he finds, presumably, what he presumes to be David Norman's gun cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, sports models, some uh, hunting rifles, a bunch of pistols, too. And he's sort of, like, looking at them, picks one up, feels the heft, puts it back, wipes his prints off it. Then notices that one of the pistols has been fired and put back without being cleaned. Which is unusual, because all the other guns are in beautiful condition. And you don't own guns like this without taking care of them, is what Magnum says, because mm-hmm. they are all, like, very nice guns. Yeah. So that's interesting. So he decides to look at some of her movies because there's a bunch of her personal tapes there that are copies of her movies or recordings of her acting classes. And he's like, well, you know what? I got a couple hours. Let's take a look at this. So he watches, uh, he throws in Queen of Borneo from 1972. It's real bad. Like you don't even really see any of the movie. You just sort of see shots of of Aaron traipsing around the jungle in a bikini. Mm-hmm. And Magna makes some sort of joke about how uh, like I could barely watch the whole thing. Da, 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 you know. But it was still enough to keep his interest. It certainly certainly kept his attention. Well, previously Magnum has admitted, he's like, I've never seen any of this woman's movies. 
Like, I realize she's kind of like a household name for being like a sex symbol. I'm trying to think of what like a modern day equivalent would be for an actress. Yeah, because they talk a lot about how she is actually super famous. And Magnum's like, Meh. but I mean, you have to remember Magnum's been in the Navy. So his probably his his movie watching time has probably been limited until like the last year. Right. Yeah. And then probably just never got around to it. Yeah, exactly. Like if you only have a certain amount of like shore leave every year, you're not going to waste it seeing like garbage movies. Or at least Magnum doesn't seem like the p- kind of person who would. Magnum right? might not. This seems like the perfect thing for <laughs> for people on shore leave to go and see. Anyhow, it's very interesting, and I'm not sort of casting aspersions on who the uh, physical attractiveness of this actress, because she has a great body, and she's obviously a beautiful actress. But she's not quite as hot as I think that everybody else is talking about. I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. I didn't want to say it because it's kind of an awful thing to say, but it felt like the episode was... Not to the extent of The Room, <laughs> where Lisa looks so beautiful, Mark. She looks so beautiful in that red dress, Mark. But the episode was doing an awful lot of telling you how amazingly attractive like, she was. every time somebody new comes in and he's like, I'm, ta- I'm investigating... Aaron Wolf. I- oh, she was so beautiful. Yeah, like, every time. And it's like, I'm not saying the actress is not attractive. No, she uh, is. But, like, it's not like... <gasps> Take your breath away. No, she was. She just. She's just very attractive, but she's not as stunning as all the dialogue would lead you to believe. Yeah, exactly. And I think what it is is maybe maybe there's a little bit of like changing beauty standards, mm-hmm. right? Like she has. Maybe like, she was super hot in 1981. Yeah, I mean, like the way that people dress and wear their hair has a lot of influence on how you perceive them as attractive. And because this show is so old, these the the way that she looks is very like out of style at this point. Hey, I'm a fan of high-waisted track pants. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, like, you know, that, you know. I can't back that up. It's, we look for different things, like, different, there are different cultural sig- signifiers of a super hot woman nowadays, right? Like, you're looking for a more curvaceous figure, you're looking for longer hair, you know, looking for, like, heavier eyebrows, like, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, interesting. I don't know. What's a modern-day Aaron Wolf equivalent, though? Like Angelina Jolie? Yeah, I think so. Like, because you have to remember, like, right now it's all, like, prestige work that she does. But, like, some of her early movies were not great. Are you besmirching Hackers? Hackers is a beautiful monument to filmmaking that stands unassailed by me. (laughs) Thank you. Anyhow, yeah. Yeah, no, I could see that. So once Magnum has finished watching her movies, he moves on to recordings of her acting classes. Because she was really trying to improve herself. It's entirely possible that her acting was not good as David Norman said, but she really wanted to change that around. Yeah, regardless of the quality, Magnum can immediately see that she puts a lot of effort into it. She's got, like, recordings going back to, like, 1972 on VHS. Yeah. And so he spends all night, like, he's there all night. He pulls up a chair, grabs a thing of yogurt from yeah, her fridge. further raiding her fridge. <laughs> gotta, he's got to get that dairy, yo. He's got to up his dairy intake. Uh, and Magnum he sits there. Magnum sponsored by the Dairy Farmers of America. <laughs> yeah. And he sits there watching her go through a series of hilarious accents. Oh, they're all bad, though. <laughs> we got the guns ashore under the eyes of the black and tan. Well, she starts out bad acting, and then by the time she does that accent, she's actually acting a lot better. Yeah. Which makes me think that the, the, the reason they cast this lady in this role is not that she is the hottest actress, because she's actually legitimately a pretty good actress. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it's actually kind of hard to act bad on purpose. Yeah. The sun eventually comes up. Magnum's still watching her tapes. There's actually no way that he could have watched that much tape in the time that he had because it was already night when he broke into the place. But maybe he skims. uh, Yeah, presumably he fast forwarded at some point. Uh, He's just sort of zoning out. And at the end of one of the tapes, her last tape of acting classes is the recording of her practicing 
for Skin Deep. And he's like, oh no, I don't know if I want to watch this, but I probably should because the police obviously missed it. Then you think, how did the police miss it? Shouldn't it have still been in the VCR? But it had been put back in the case on the shelf. We then cut to the tape still playing, but now Magnum's called David Norman in to watch it. And he says, I don't, I don't, I don't want to watch this. You need, to, you need to stop it. And Magnum's like, she doesn't shoot herself on the tape. The gun on the tape is not loaded. She doesn't even blink. Yeah. Magnum tells Norman that there's another take earlier on that was cut off with a phone call, and then this is the second take. And he's trying to get out of Norman that it was him who phoned. Because Magnum strongly suspects it is? Yeah. The doorbell rings. Norman says, is it the police? And Magnum just sort of doesn't say anything. And Norman says, well, you can't give them the tape. And he's like, why can't I give the tape to the police? They must have missed it. You know, you hired me to to prove that she was murdered, and this proves that she didn't kill herself. Norman says, no, I hired you to find her lover. That's what I want you to do. And Magnum's like, is that why you called her? And he's like, well, you know, you heard the phone call. And Magnum's like, no, she stopped recording before she actually answered the phone. So he tricks him not only into admitting that it was him who phoned her that night, but also it's not the police at the door. Yeah, I think, but this this scene is really good, and it, uh, there there's a little bit more dialogue before we actually get to see who's at the door. But we, we've established right now, and it's really well acted actually between the both of them that David Norman thinks he is a lot smarter than Magnum. Oh yeah, it's established at this point that Magnum is actually really really good at reading people. Like it's almost like mm, part for me. Like Magnum is so good at knowing when people are lying or when something is a little bit off. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like that's a skill a private detective has. Obviously, he was in naval intelligence for many years. And but it's like so it's really interesting to see these t- to see Magnum trying to fool David Norman. But anyhow, the conversation continues. Mm-hmm. In fact, Magnum also gets Norman to admit that he in fact has a lover on the side, despite being so jealous at the thought that Aaron does, he himself does, though it's not serious between him and her. Yeah, Ginger's just a body I sleep with, he says. Yeah, David Norman is gross. But he loved Aaron. But this Ginger, no. (sighs) But anyhow, this is great, because basically Magnum's like, well, JJ told me this, and he's like, oh, JJ doesn't know what he's talking about, he's lying, and it's just, you know... There's only somebody I sleep with, and Magnum's like, good to know that J.J. has told me nothing but the truth, and you have been evasive. Interesting, interesting. You just see Magnum sort of, like, ticking ticking yeah. things over in his head. And then he goes and answers the door, which, as I mentioned, was not the police, but is, in fact, Higgins, who <laughs> complains that he says the house is not that big because it's taken Magnum, like, five minutes to answer the door. Like, Higgins has had to ring the doorbell, like, five times and re- resorted to knocking. Uh, Magnum got Higgins to run some ballistics tests for him, which we know he'd be capable of because we saw that he has a shotgun. Higgins shooting clay pigeons earlier. In exchange for no guests or parties or loud noises or making himself known to guests of Robin Masters for a period of one week. Two weeks. Two weeks. <laughs> Higgins kind of has him over a barrel and is being a jerk. There's some negotiations happening in the doorway. They come inside. Higgins is surprised to see David Norman there. He's a big fan of his of his movies, actually. Yeah, recognizes him. Yeah. And then uh, talks all about double-aught buckshot. He has two of the, like, firing range people cutouts. Yeah. And he's showing, like, at four foot, all the shot is still enters the skull as a mass and just puts, like, a... Basically bores a hole through it. Yeah. Uh, but so you would lose a lot of face, but not the entire face. Yeah, take the brain out. 
But at 12 feet, it, uh, they spread out more and they completely obliterate the face and make it totally unrecognizable. And then Higgins just keeps talking about how lethal double-aught buckshot is and just like way overshares. Yeah, yeah, he's like, well, I mean, like, and if you're going to go to 70 meters, you might be able to live, but I've seen people die because it just goes through a jugular and, and uh, Dave Norman is like, shut up. <laughs> And Higgins completely ignores this and is like, in fact, I remember one time in the north of Africa, we were running out of water. And He's had pulled to, a major dad move. Had to pinch water from a jerry well. And, then, and Magnum's like, Higgins, Higgins, please, please, please calm down. Uh, and you're thinking, well, I mean, I can understand that David Norman might be emotional about, you know, Aaron having her head blown off. But also Magnum then brings up the very good point. In the tape, the gun is four, four feet, feet away. away. Because she needs to be able to yank on it, mm-hmm. on the string. But the sort of facial destruction aftermath is consistent with the gun being much farther away. And in fact, the police found the chair 12 feet away. But why would she go through all that trouble and then move it eight feet back to kill herself? Like, it doesn't make any sense. To a less effective range. Yeah, like, if you want to kill yourself, you're usually trying to get right up in there. So Magnum's confused, and... David is looking at a picture of Aaron camping in a cove on Hawaii, and his eyes bug out. And Magnum's like, what? What is it? And Norman's like, no, no, it's nothing. And Magnum's like, like hell, it's nothing. I saw your face. And Norman just sort of smiles and shows him the picture. And it's, it's like I said, it's Aaron camping on a cove. And Magnum's like, wait, you didn't take this picture? And Norman's like, nope. I wonder who did. And Magnum's like, aha, a lead. So we cut to TC working on his helicopter. Magnum's like, where's this cove? And TC immediately says, boy, the lady in that picture sure is hot. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and like, Magnum's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Where's oh, this cove? Oh, red dress looks great. <laughs> and there's about five minutes of TC being utterly useless at knowing where this cove is. Because it could be anything. It's, this, it's a very close shot. It, there's no way you'd be able to tell. But he's well, like, oh, it could be a cove on this island or maybe a cove on this island. And Magnum's like, okay, great, thanks. Or maybe this island, or maybe this one, or maybe this series of small islands north of this place. And Magnum's like, wait, those ones don't even have beaches that look like this. And TC's like, or this cove, or this cove, or this other cove. And Magnum's like, you you have no idea, do you? And TC's like, why did you come down here? And Magnum's like, because I like seeing helicopters take off and land. No, because I'm looking for this cove. It's important. <laughs> it's very funny. So TC's like, oh, well, then you should you should go talk to the guy who runs the Paradise Found like a competitor company or something. Yeah. Camping picnic getaway thing. Like what? Why? Well, all the camping gear in there is his. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't you tell me earlier? Uh, Well, I mean, he didn't ask him about the camping gear. He asked him about the cove. Yeah, exactly. I get the feeling TC was going to tell him anyhow. He just wanted to wind Magnum up a little bit. Yeah. So, Oh, this is all done while TC is working on his helicopter engine, which is kind of a nice little like character building moment. You're like, wow, TC knows how to do mechanics, which makes sense because he, he runs to. his own helicopter company, but it's still neat. He's been flying helicopters since Nam. So he talks to John at Paradise Found, who uh, they, they run like picnic weekend getaways. They'll like fly you out to an uninhabited island, set you up with a bunch of camping gear and then leave and then come back and pick you up. Mm. And he says that, yeah, basically almost every weekend, Aaron Wolf would go out to this cove just to get away. And Magnum's like, well, it's, did anyone go with her? And uh, he's like, no, no, she was she was always alone. Well, one guy went with her like a year ago. Like, well, who was that? Oh, David Norman. And Magnum's like, you son of a bitch. Or not you son of a bitch. He's like, that son of a bitch lied to me. He, he did take this picture and he knows where it is. And then John running Paradise Found is like, yeah, actually, he, uh, uh, one of my other pilots flew David Norman out there earlier today. And Magnum's like, 
What? <laughs> Cut to TC's helicopter in the air, Magnum and TC racing to that cove. Because Magnum is sure that maybe that he doesn't think that anybody related to Aaron Winters is, or Aaron Wolf is out there. But the problem being, David is convinced that she has a lover. So if he just finds some guy camping on the beach with his girlfriend or something like that, he, Magnum is really concerned that David Norman is going to kill him thinking he's Aaron's lover. Or that she does have a lover and that he's out there. And yeah. you know, he's like, David Norman's going to go kill someone. <laughs> like, this even, man is unhinged. Yeah, even and like the thing is, Magnum's like, even if this, this lover did kill Aaron... David Norman should not go kill this man, right? Yeah. Like, anyhow, so he's pretty concerned, and he's getting it, and he's trying to get out there. And so then they're in the helicopter. TC gets on the radio with Billy, the other pilot, and is like, "Hey, did you drop David Norman off at your pad on this island?" He's like, "Yeah." Was he armed? No. Cut to a shot of David Norman, a hundred percent armed, with a rifle, <laughs> completely armed. Um, but the oil pressure in TC's helicopter is dropping. Oh, apparently those re- repairs didn't take. His repairs did not take. And Magnum has to bail out because there's a guy on the beach. Like, he can see there's a camping equipment on the beach. Norman would have been dropped at the helipad up on the mountain. So Magnum's got to get to the beach before Norman gets down from the mountain. And kills an innocent person, likely. Yeah. So Magnum jumps out of the helicopter. and With a much better stunt double than the last time we saw Magnum jump from the helicopter. I mean, it was only like 10 feet into water. It could have actually been Tom Selleck. They probably wouldn't let Tom Selleck do that. Probably not. So he swims ashore, and TC has to land before his oil pressure runs out. And there's a pretty dangerous-looking helicopter stunt, actually, of it, like, losing altitude and stuff. Yeah, and, like, spinning around on, like, the edge of a cliff. Like, that does not look like it was safe to film in the slightest. And it's like, wow, this show had a huge budget. Yeah. To do helicopter stunts? Jeez. Actually, I mean, I guess we should mention, not during that scene, but during a uh, a different, pretty banal helicopter shot, a low-flying aerial sequence uh, earlier in the episode... Um, that one of the camera helicopters actually did crash, killing a camera technician. Wow. During the filming of this episode, uh, Robert Vanderkar, uh, to whom the episode is dedicated. The pilot was injured, and it was found to be pilot error, a misjudgment in altitude, and the pilot's license was suspended for 90 days. I mean, the pilot probably felt pretty crappy about killing someone. You'd think that would be like a manslaughter charge, but maybe that's not how it works when you're in a plane. Or a helicopter? I feel like you sign a waiver saying that you're not responsible for accidental death. I guess. Uh, helicopters are, in fact, really dangerous. Yeah. So the helicopter stunt actually went totally fine and looked looked really cool. Uh, Magnum washes ashore, uh, gets to the uh, the tent, and is trying to find whoever it is. You know, yeah, he's like, hello, hello, anybody you know, out there? There's a crazy guy with a gun. Please just watch out. And a- who should come out of the woods? Aaron Wolf. And Graham and I are just like... What? Because yeah. we did not see this coming. She's and, she's alive and fine and confused. And Magnum is like, what? And she's been here for a couple days, and she it, she just thinks that Magnum's a reporter and who has finally found her secret paparazzi getaway. And right, because is, of course she's a big name actress and she's been she's signed on to play Skin Deep, which is a really high profile upcoming movie, and so people have been pestering her, right? Yeah, and she's just been trying to get away and recharge her batteries, and she has no idea about anything and what doesn't believe Magnum until they start getting shot at by David. He's like, David is David is here to kill your lover. She's like, I don't have one. I've been coming here by myself. And he's like, Well, he is convinced you have one, and then Magnum gets shot in the leg. And so they dive behind a tree. 
and discuss this, and everything sort of falls into place. Ginger, David Norman's new lover, who looks very similar to Aaron Wolf because David has a type, is the woman who was killed. But no one knew because her face was unrecognizable because of the buckshot, and she was dead in Aaron's house in Aaron's clothes, so there was no reason to be like, well, we should confirm the identity. Exactly. And so Magnum pieces together. David had gone to Aaron's house to kill her. Not necessarily to kill her, but well, to maybe. certainly to kill her lover that he knew that she had when she did not. Yeah, he was just convinced that she was cheating cheating on him, even though she'd broken it off. Yeah. And and what happened was Ginger had come over to see Aaron. She had gotten she had shown up high and then drank a bottle of wine. Aaron told her to stay there, whatever. It's it's David's house anyhow. Taken off to go to the cove to relax. Ginger wanted to have, as Aaron put it, the the naive old girlfriend, new girlfriend, heart to heart. (laughs) And Aaron was like, it's a bad idea, girl. (laughs) Yeah, get out. Don't do it. Don't do it. But Magnum surmises that David had gone in, ended up shooting Ginger, realizing what had happened, and then so setting it up to make it look like Aaron had committed suicide because he knew she was doing skin deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that explains why the shotgun was 12 feet away and in the video it was only four feet away because he wanted to make sure that her face would get blown up. So the tape was back in the shelf because... Aaron had put it away. She'd finished what she was doing and put it away and then gotten on the helicopter and left and not told anyone, obviously, because she didn't want anyone to follow her. And she certainly didn't want David to follow her. So she has no idea that any of this has happened. Right. This is, of course, pre-cell phones, pre-internet. She's obviously been out of, like, people contact for the last week, probably. And this is the thing. I never pegged David Norman for the killer because I actually believed that he loved Aaron too much to kill her. But I definitely believed that he would be jealous enough and unhinged enough to kill her supposed lover that he believed that she had. And so you're wondering, well, why, if David was killed Ginger, why would he hire Magnum to prove that she was murdered? Because he wanted Magnum to find this fictional lover. At this point, David's completely gone off the deep end and and Magnum is like, and then he wanted to kill all three of us. Tie yeah. up any loose ends. So he sees, when David saw that... Which is probably why he agreed to pay him 500 bucks a day, because yeah. he knew he wouldn't have to pay it. When David saw that photo, he the, the reason the he reacted is he was like, the cove, of course, that's where Aaron. That's where Aaron's lover must be. And so that's why he went there. Everything actually falls into place really, really well, and I was completely 100% not expecting this twist. No, it was, it was well written. And I was actually, I did actually suspect that David had killed her. Uh, I expected some kind of, like, jungle showdown between Magnum and David and perhaps with innocent people in the way. I didn't believe that David Norman was... Obviously, Ian McShane's a great actor, but I did not believe that David Norman was a good enough actor Mm. that I believed that he loved Aaron too much to kill her, but loved Aaron too much that he wanted her lover dead. See, my take on it was that he... Didn't necessarily love Aaron the person. He loved having Aaron around because she was his. I got a very, I got a possessive, not loving vibe off him. Mm, uh, so I, I was like, that. absolutely, he would kill her because she sees her as a possession. And then that is backed up because then he starts shooting at both of them trying to kill Aaron. Yeah. But Magnum's, he's, he's pretty confident because he knows that TC was having helicopter troubles and had to make an emergency landing on the pad. And so that TC would have to be radioing 
back for emergency pickup, especially since TC's now heard gunshots. Cut to TC making the emergency radio call, and the radio doesn't work. So TC has to send up a flare. Magnum sees the flare and has another NOM flashback of TC sending up a flare in NOM. Cuts back to now, and Magnum says, that flare, that'll be TC. He shot the flare. That means Charlie's after us. We need to keep moving. And, <laughs> and I'm you're, like, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, because Magnum's losing blood. And so he's a little loopy. He's like got his belt like tied around his upper thigh to try and like tourniquet it a little bit. But he's but honestly, like having a nom flashback is never a good thing. But while you're actually being stalked through the jungle by a madman with a gun, it's not the worst thing that can happen to yes. you. It seems like it's kind of useful. Yeah. When TC's coming down the mountain to yeah. try and try and find Magnum, he he may not have actually heard the the gunfire. Yeah, but well, that's when TC finds a bullet casing, and he's like, "Oh, it's like, oh, there's some stuff happening." Well, now. I mean, TC is heading down the mountain because he knows that there is a path down the mountain and there's people there, and yeah. that maybe they have a radio, and because he can't leave this island until he gets like help because he has to repair his helicopter, right? Yeah. So Aaron gets uh, grazed by one of David's shots, not hurt, but grazed, and Magnum's like. Stay down, play dead, trust me, pretend to be dead. And at the same time, he is flashing back to a time when Rick was shot and he did this thing where he told Rick to play dead. And then when the Viet Cong came over to check on Rick's body, Magnum burst out of the bushes and attacked them. And so he's trying to do the same thing again now. So he's telling Aaron to pretend to be dead. He's goading David. By the way, who promises Magnum a clean kill is like, if you come out, you know, right in the heart, one shot, you're done. Don't worry about it. I promise. What an asshole. Uh, but if you make me come in there looking for you, Magnum, I'll I'll make it painful. Well, he says, I'll gut you like a fish and leave you for the rats. Yes. <laughs> like, wow. It, this time, Magnum's like, she didn't have a lover. She didn't have a lover. It's just you. You're the person who is making this up. And he's like, never. I'll never believe it. Oh. He's completely unhinged. Yeah. So David comes over sees Aaron's body, lines up for a double tap. <laughs> just to make sure. Just to make sure. And uh, Magnum bursts out of the bushes, knocks David down, falls in the water. David manages to get back to uh, land and uh, crawls over for his gun. And TC appears out of the bushes with a flare gun aiming it uh, right at David and is like, I would not touch that gun, <laughs> and kicks the gun away while Magnum is slowly drowning in the background because <laughs> his leg isn't working. <laughs> yeah, and he's lost a lot of blood. And he's like, TC... Help, help. And then we cut to a shot looking up at TC, wearing different clothes now, being like, oh, you need help up? Okay. Reaches down and lifts up Magnum, who, as we cut to wide, we see are they are now playing... Uh, beach volleyball. Doubles beach, vo- beach volleyball. Let's just talk about what they're wearing. Magnum is wearing a pair of swimming trunks, short he's, shorts. He's wearing swimming trunks and bandages around his, his Lip, right thigh. Yeah. TC is wearing a tank top, tight blue jeans that are rolled up, sneakers and socks. Yeah, it's like rolled up to like mid shin. Yeah, like what and is then like going on high, here? High, high white socks and like. But TC oh. kind of rocks it. TC oh. is built. Yeah. Also. also, you see that TC is cut. <laughs> TC is huge. Yeah. No wonder they they refer to TC as as the muscle. Like TC is humongous. So I imagine, while it's not shown, that his he deals with David Norman by punching his lights like literally out. We don't see quite the resolution, but we're pretty sure that. Uh, David is alive and having to uh, answer for his crimes, and that Aaron is alive and fine. Well, they do mention that Aaron is filming her movie. Oh, right. Yeah, because this has been a month later. Cause, and uh, she's almost recovered, and filming is about to start in like a few days or something. Yeah. And then the episode finishes with Magnum just sort of 
thinking about his nom flashbacks and he says to TC, he's like, Hey, do you ever, uh, do you ever get any, like, do you ever think about the war? Do you ever have any like flashback memories that sort of like surprise you, catch you off guard? And TC gets this real far away and his look in his eyes. And he clearly has a flashback just that just sort of thinking about it. And he looks at Magnum. He says, nah, man. And Magnum's like, yeah, no, neither do I. (laughs) And then cut to credits. With no music. No, not even Magnum and TC are willing to talk about it. It's sad, actually. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. And uh, the lack of music at the end is actually very consistent. There's not a lot of incidental music in this episode. Like, it's clearly... There's very little, yeah. It's clearly supposed to be, like, quite dark. Mm -hmm. I am impressed by how completely... Look, Kathleen and I are writers, and we are super cynical, and we'll be watching TV. You know, we'll guess who the killer is, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we'll know what's happening. We'll know what's coming. Except, (laughs) actually, that's one of the reasons I like watching... um, CSI sometimes as like mindless television because the the when there's a twist in that it makes no logical sense. No, it's always like bum bum bum. I pulled this other killer out of my hat. Yeah, and so it's like oh, I I could never have seen that coming because it's nuts. Yeah, there's no way to. Yeah, but if if there's a thing that's like makes logical sense and like this, all the threads were tied up. Like everything, all the inconsistencies were not actually inconsistent with how everything turned out. And it was yeah, the, I, it was a ridiculous like it was an, a plot twist. Neither of us saw coming that she would still be alive, yeah. uh, but it was actually like earned because they had set up enough stuff, mm-hmm. right? It didn't seem as ludicrous as it could have seemed for sort of a very late late act plot twist of oh my god she's alive and David Norman was after like I figured Norman was actually the bad guy, but I figured that he was like seriously deranged. And, like I said, was just on the and was going to like injure people who had nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. And that would be a fine resolution. The Magnum would be able to like corner him on the island and get him to admit that he had killed Aaron and then now he's after this mythical lover and Magnum would have to say, you're nuts. And, you know, that would be fine. And I thought that was a good episode. Yeah. You want some weird trivia about the episode, by the way? I would love some weird trivia about the episode. Just because you mentioned him, Tommy Fujiwara, who's the Japanese actor who plays Dr. Makudo in the, uh, in the morgue. Wait. Are you saying it's a Japanese actor playing a Japanese role? Bum, bum, bum. Holy crap, that almost never happens. He would appear in Magnum uh, three other times as different characters. Oh, really? Yeah. As oh, I was kind of hoping he'd come back as this no-nonsense coroner. No, he comes back as a character named Hiromoto, a, a member of the Yakuza, and another doctor named Dr. Kumiya. Well, at least those are also Japanese characters. Yep. He played a medical examiner and a coroner in Jake and the Fat Man. He played a doctor in One West Waikiki. He played a series of roles in Hawaii Five O, which again got referenced in this episode. Magna made a passing reference to uh, McGarrett again in this episode. I the, feel like I've never. I feel like not having ever seen a single episode of Hawaii Five O was hurting me. Yeah, I'm just sort of like I wonder who's he. I wonder who he's talking about. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time, it'd probably be like ah, oh, because you know Hawaii Five O was you know had just wrapped. It was really popular. Yeah. But yeah, I, I continue to really enjoy this series. I, I thought that was a really good episode. Yeah, I would give that an eight on the Kathleen scale of Magnum episodes. I think I actually will do a little like number rating for every episode from now on. Sounds good. I don't know where to rank it. 
I don't know. Well, uh, it's not as good as No Need to Know, which was good. Although the 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 bad guy reveal in No Need to Know was less surprise. Or I guess the surprise of No Need to Know was less surprising because obviously the stewardess was, was acting funny. It was foreshadowed more. Yes. But uh, I yeah, I really liked this. I thought Ian McShane was great. I thought Kathy Sheriff did a great job. I liked that the dialogue that she was rehearsing in the Donald P. Belisario Skin Deep movie was not as good as the dialogue in the actual show. Yeah. I, that, that line, like, right between the baby blues. Oh, is such so a, bad. Such a dumb line, and I love that it was, like, intentional. Yeah. I like that. But, I mean, that's how you know. That's how, like, when you're... When you're acting and you have to show that you are acting within acting, that you always make it like way over the top. Yeah. So that was Skin Deep. Next week, we'll be bringing you the next episode of Magnum, Never Again, Never Again. This podcast is supported by your kind support of our Patreon at patreon.com slash loading ready run. It supports more than just this, obviously, but this is part of it. And uh, we really appreciate you listening to it and uh tell your friends because we think it's fun or tell your parents if they like magnum yeah i'm not even joking my my parents were super on board with the idea when we they told were them. delighted yeah we're like we're doing a podcast they're like oh yeah what about and we're like magnum pi and they're like oh get out i love that show in the 80s yeah <laughs> we're super excited yeah i gotta t- i gotta show them how to do like itunes or whatever yeah so they can listen to it yeah so thank you so much for listening and uh we will talk to you next time bye Zeus, Apollo, pull. <laughs> How would Ian McShane have delivered that line? Zeus, Apollo, kill. No, that's not quite right. Zeus, Apollo, Zeus, Apollo, kill. No, I can't do it. What, is it. what do you sound like? Zeus, Apollo, kill. You sound kind of like Wilford that's Brimley. <laughs> too, too, too jowly. Too jowly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll dial back the jowls. If you could. <laughs>